There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's so tell me, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, for what and medical purpose was charcoal used in ancient Egypt? And why do farmers set up surveillance cameras around their anhydrous ammonia fertilizer tanks? If you know the answer to either of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text your answers to 514-800. All right, I'll repeat them. For what medical purpose was charcoal used in ancient Egypt? And why do farmers set up surveillance cameras around their anhydrous ammonia fertilizer tanks? I'm Joe Schwartz, and I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, keep you guys up to date on what happens in the world of science, uh, separate myth from fact, and hopefully keep you out of the clutches of the charlatans. Well, uh, this week, uh, it was quite a week, wasn't it, in many, many ways, uh, politically, scientifically. Uh, politically, we were treated to the uh, Trump fiasco. Uh, but uh, then we had the uh, sort of the mini ice storm. Well, I say mini in comparison to the one that uh, uh, we had before, the major one. But nevertheless, this was pretty bad. It, uh, a lot of fallen branches, uh, trees came down, a lot of people lost power. Uh, I lost it for about two days. Mercifully, it came back, and uh, hopefully it holds. So anyway, I thought that this is quite an opportune time to tell you a little story about the beginnings of uh, electricity. So let's go. Amber. It's an alluring golden fossilized sap of a tree, which attracted the attention of the ancient Greeks in more ways than one. They fabricated it into ornaments of various sorts, and in the process discovered that if amber were rubbed, it attracted dust particles and small pieces of lint. The Greek word for amber was electron, a word scientists have appropriated to describe the smallest particle of negative charge. Indeed, rubbing a piece of amber causes it to lose electrons, become charged, and attract small particles. Sometimes rubbing materials together would even result in a spark, undoubtedly an electrifying experience. Such observations sparked the interest of Otto von Guericke, a 17th century German scientist. He constructed a large sphere made of sulfur and mounted it on an axle in such a way that it could be rapidly rotated by means of a handle. Resting a hand on the sphere while it was turning caused the hand and the body attached to it to develop a charge. Von Guericke had constructed the world's first static generator. He could think of no real use for the contraption and was pretty well relegated to parlor games. A gentleman standing on a wooden stool could be charged, and when he kissed a lady standing on the ground, the sparks would literally fly. Luigi Galvani, an Italian professor of anatomy, became intrigued by von Guericke's machine and decided to investigate the effect of static electricity on biological systems. One day in 1780, 
he was looking for observable changes in a dissected frog as an assistant cranked an electrostatic generator nearby. Nothing much happened until Galvani picked up a steel scalpel to expose some more tissue. As he was cutting away, suddenly a spark jumped from the machine to the scalpel, and to Galvani's amazement, the frog leg began to twitch. It was as if the animal had come back to life. If a small spark could cause such an effect, what could a large spark do? And what better source for a really large spark than lightning? So during a thunderstorm, Galvani took some freshly killed frog legs, strung them on a brass wire, and hung them on the iron fence in front of his house. He then waited for lightning to strike. It didn't. But something else did happen. The frog legs swayed back and forth in the breeze. And every time they touched the iron fence, they twitched uncontrollably. Now this was really strange. Muscle stimulation in response to electricity was one thing, but these apparently spontaneous spasms were something else altogether. Galvani had to come up with a rationale for the bizarre event. He hypothesized that somehow electricity was stored in the frog muscle and it could be released under certain conditions. Animal electricity, he called it. The idea of animal electricity did not sit well with Alessandro Volta, Galvani's countryman, professor of physics at the University of Pava. He searched for an alternate explanation for the frog-leg activity in the thunderstorm and soon found it. The electricity did not come from the frogs. It came from the brass support and the iron fence. Volta discovered that electric current could be generated when two dissimilar metals, such as iron and brass, were connected through a moist conductor, which in this case was the frog. As the frog legs attached to the brass wire dangled in the wind, a current flowed whenever they touched the iron fence. The Italian physicist had invented the battery. Walter soon found that silver and zinc formed an even better set of metals and that the frog leg could be replaced by a piece of moist cardboard. He went on to build little sandwiches made of discs of silver and zinc separated by wet cardboard. He then stacked these one on top of the other to create a voltaic pile. Grasping the pile between the hands had the same effect as holding an electric eel. News of Volta's discovery electrified Europe. The suddenly famous scientist was invented to speak at London's Royal Society and was even asked to give a private demonstration of the dancing frog legs to Emperor Napoleon. Soon scientists across Europe were exploring the potential uses of Volta's discovery. By 1807, Humphrey Dave in England had built a 2000 cell battery which he connected to a wire that became hot and glowed. So this crude prototype of an incandescent light was a direct descendant of Galvani's dancing frog legs. Soon demonstrations of electrical phenomena were featured in many universities. On a momentous day in 1819, Professor Hans Christian Orsted gathered his students at the University of Copenhagen for just such an electrical performance. At the time, the passage of electric current through a wire was not much more than a scientific curiosity. The wire would heat up and glow impressively. Certainly interesting observation, but not of any apparent practical importance. 
Much later, of course, human ingenuity would put glowing wires to work in light bulbs, toasters, and heaters. But it was a chance occurrence during Earth's demonstration of a wire heating up by attaching a battery to it to ends that would change the world forever. As luck would have it, a compass happened to be sitting next to the glowing wire on the equipment pack table. Orsted noted that as soon as the current was applied, the compass needle suddenly shifted its position and pointed straight at the wire. His curiosity was aroused. When he disconnected the battery, the compass needle reverted to its original position. Orsted immediately realized that the current in his wire had created a temporary magnetic field. Electricity and magnetism were somehow related. In fact, connecting and disconnecting the wire in rapid succession could cause the compass needle to spin wildly. Orsted had discovered the phenomenon of electromagnetism. All that was needed now was to find a use for it. What an inspiration for other scientists. In England, Michael Faraday, who would eventually be hailed as the father of electricity, took up the challenge. To him, the spinning compass needle represented a mini-motor. Within a few years, he had devised ways to connect magnets to spin in response to an electrically induced magnetic field, and the electric motor was born. Every electrical motor from hair dryers to Ferris wheels uses this principle. But Faraday went one step further. He determined that not only could current in a wire create a magnetic field, but the reverse was also true. A magnet moving in a wire coil could generate a current. The electrical generator was born. And we have been generating electricity in the same fashion ever since. And gee, what problems occur when all of a sudden we are put into darkness. So it is, uh, I think, interesting to, you know, look back at the history of electricity and, in fact, how recently it was discovered and uh, what life must have been like before the amazing discoveries made by Galvani, Volta, Orsted, and Faraday. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalite, lots of sugar, hey, all right. calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calcinate, soybean oil, butter fat, caramel sensor. I'll eat that. All right, back to the questions that I had posed. I asked about uh, medical purpose uh, for charcoal in ancient Egypt. I don't have an answer to that. And also asked a question about why farmers set up surveillance cameras around their anhydrous ammonia fertilizer tanks. I did get a, an answer to that, but not a correct one. Uh, Drew thinks that it is uh, because the fertilizer can be used for making bombs. Uh, no, that's not why. Uh, the farmers are concerned. Uh, actually, the, uh, there is a connection of ammonia to bombs through ammonium nitrate, which is a fertilizer. But I'm talking here about ammonia gas. So why would uh, farmers be worried uh, enough to set up surveillance cameras uh, for that? If you know, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. That's also the, the number to call if you have any question. 
about anything in the world of science that I may possibly have some idea about. Um, or, of course, you can text your questions and comments to 514-800. Let me talk for a moment about Gwyneth Paltrow. Why? Uh, she's always in the news. Uh, this past week, uh, she actually won a lawsuit, uh, which I, I think uh, was just. She had been accused of, of causing a skiing accident by a guy who I think was... Uh, trying to capitalize on having crashed into a famous per rich person and was uh, trying to get some money off of her. Uh, but the court found on her behalf that she wasn't at, at fault. Anyway, uh, I, I guess I would agree with, with that. But there's uh, something else, of course, uh, that was in the news. And I mentioned this uh, last week uh, with Gwyneth. And uh, this was about... Uh, uh, blasting some ozone gas up her rear uh, for some uh, undisclosed benefit. She didn't say why this was good. Anyway, you know, there's alternative practitioners who recommend uh, using uh, ozone therapy for everything from back pain and arthritis to, to disturbingly uh, cancer. Uh, some administer the gas intravenously. Others make a solution of it and inject it. Then there are some ozonated oils that you apply to the skin. Uh, there's uh, some ozonated water that you can drink. And uh, there are even some ozone saunas. Well, luckily in these ozone saunas, which basically just a box in which you sit with the head outside the box, that's a good idea that the head is outside because inhaling ozone, of course, is not a good thing to do. Uh, ozone is an air pollutant and it is very irritating to, to the lungs. But the reason I bring this up now is because of this mental image of sitting in a box and being exposed to a gas. And uh, there's an interesting historical connection to something called the organ accumulator. And uh, this is something that uh, came about uh, in 1940 and it was the invention of uh, physician Wilhelm Reich. He was born in 1897 uh, in what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was educated in, in Vienna. And he got a degree in uh, medicine and he specialized in uh, psychoanalysis. And uh, this, of course, brought him into contact with Sigmund Freud, uh, who is, of course, regarded as the father of psychoanalysis. And at that time, uh, Freud was getting a lot of attention because of his theory that neuroses are caused by a conflict between society's suppression of natural sexual instincts and the body's urge to express these instincts, right? I mean, this uh, we just uh, come out of the Victorian era, uh, which was very, very prim and proper. And, um, you know, sexual activities were certainly not discussed in, in public. And uh, in fact, or, uh, you know, any discussion was frowned upon. Anyway, this notion appealed to Reich, who pushed the idea further to claim that neurotic symptoms could be alleviated by sexual gratification. Orgasm, he maintained, discharges excess biological energy. And if this excess is allowed to build up in the body, it will fuel neurotic disorders. So according to Reich, sexual misery was rampant 
and sufferers needed to be educated about the essential role of sexuality in life. Uh, so Reich's ideas about sex being good and restraint being bad, well, this didn't sit well with the medical establishment at that time. Neither did it sit well with the fascists who were gaining power in the 1930s. Uh, they didn't like the insinuation that their odious beliefs uh, emerged from sexual frustration. Anyway, Reich uh, left Europe, came to America, where he thought that uh, uh, the idea of a better orgasm curing society's ills would be more acceptable. And indeed, it turned out to be so. Um, especially after Reich introduced some pseudoscientific conjecture about the source of the energy that fueled the orgasm. It was an invisible substance for which he coined the term organ, O-R-G-O-N-E, that permeated the atmosphere from where it could be absorbed into the body to vitalize it and to maintain health. But if it was allowed to build up to an excess, it caused problems. But luckily, the excess could be released by sexual satisfaction. How Reich came to formulate his ideas about the existence of organ is somewhat of a mystery. Uh, but lack of evidence for the existence of organ did not stop him from producing organ accumulators and claiming that sitting in one of these boxes, which is what it was, it was just a wooden box, that this would enhance the power of a future orgasm by improving its users with orgastic potency. And sitting in these organ accumulators would also be able to treat disease. Oh, there was even more. Besides leading to genital utopia and miraculous cures, organ could also produce rain. Reich built a bizarre machine that supposedly generated the elusive organ and discharged it at the sky in a process he called cloud busting. Needless to say, that was a bust. Anyway, uh, Reich's sexual hedonism and his claims about the wonders of the organ accumulator uh, got a lot of media attention. So much so that his exploits came to the attention of the Food and Drug Administration in the US. And they didn't think much of the claims that were being made on behalf of this organ accumulator. The FDA said that this was false and misleading advertising and they managed to get an injunction. Uh, and uh, the injunction said that uh, the organ accumulator could not be sold and that any dissemination of literature that promoted its healing properties uh, was illegal. When uh, accumulators continued to be sold in spite of this injunction, Reich was arrested, sentenced to prison, uh, and he died there. That was in 1957. But you know what? The accumulator did not die with him. Writers such as Norman Mailer, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, these were the pioneers of what came to be called the beat generation. Well, they loved this idea of sitting in this box to be energized, and they embraced it. There was uh, Sean Connery, who during his James Bond days gave it a shot. At least so the story goes. He had some virility problems due to an inner conflict between himself and his James Bond persona. Whether or not he received any satisfaction from the machine is obscure. Actually, I really shouldn't even call it a, a machine because it didn't have any moving parts. 
didn't have any electricity attached to it. Uh, it did nothing. <laughs> it uh, delivered maybe a dose of placebo. Anyway, just to finish off this little story, Woody Allen parodied the organ accumulator in Sleeper. Very good film back in 1973, in which the uh, hero, an owner of a health food store, undergoes cryopreservation and wakes up in the 22nd century. And he wakes up in a dystopic America where sexual ecstasy can be achieved in a cabinet called the orgasmatron. And that doesn't even require any messy physical contact. That was an interesting and a clear dig at Reich's uh, accumulator. Uh, today, these accumulators are only found in museums. And uh, apparently, Gwyneth has not gotten wind of this because I think that, uh, you know, this would be just the kind of thing for her to make and sell on her Goop website. It would certainly entice the customers who were enticed by her uh, jade vaginal eggs and uh, her uh, coffee enemas and her rectal ozone treatments. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check news and be right back. has an answer to my questions. Uh, let's go with Terry. Hi, Terry. Yeah, Hi, Terry. can you hear me? I hear you. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm... Yeah. Turn down your radio. Yeah, I'm here, but I think the lines are crossed. Well, I hear you well. Oh, okay. Uh, I was calling about that question, the charcoal and the Egyptians. Yes. Um, it's either they used it for makeup or they would grind it up and use it to add water and use it as ink for the papyrus. Uh, no, I, I said medical reasons, medical reasons. So oh, while you're right, I mean, yeah, they, they did use charcoal for ink. That's that's quite true. They did use it in makeup. That's correct. But I'm looking for a medical reason. Okay. Oh, well, anyway, thanks med for trying. Medical reason? I have no clue. Okay. Have a good we'll day. See if, bye. We'll see if Kenny has an idea. Kenny. Hi, uh, hi Joe. Dr. Joe. How are you doing? Okay. Yeah, so, so I got a question for, for, the, uh, for the farmers. Okay. Is it the non-toxic law 97 was passed in 1953? No. No, huh? No, no. All right. We'll go to Arthur. See if yeah, hi, uh, could it be they used it for an antidote for poison? Well, actually, charcoal can be used as an antidote for poison, and, and it is stocked for that purpose in emergency rooms. 
but the Egyptians would not have known about that. Okay, I have a question about storing gas, please, Doc. Okay. Uh, I store gas, and you have to put an additive if you're to keep it a long time. Now, there's something that, that evaporates in the what gas. What do you mean gas? Like, it... What do you mean gas? What do you mean gas? Gasoline? Gasoline for my uh, snowblower, okay. my lawnmower. Okay. Generators, so they, you have to put the, an additive if you're to keep it a long time. It's to prevent something from evaporating, and then it gets too high in octane or something, and it lacquers your, your carburetor. What I want to know is if you, if you put the container completely to the top and seal it, do you have to put the additive? I'm not sure what that additive is. I it's called Stabil. It's, uh, it's storage to keep your gas for about 12 months. You have to add it to your gas. And uh, well, it must so, be some like, sort of I mean, if you forget, or uh, if, you, if if I don't want to add it, uh, if I keep the gas container completely full and close it, would it stay without uh, the I, No, because even even then, it it's not hermetically sealed. Air still gets in there. Where in the container? Yeah, yeah. I have to take a look to see what this uh, additive okay, is. Okay, please, because okay, uh, it's important I, okay. to me, because they say something evaporates from the gas, and then it becomes too high in octane. And, uh, okay, let me let me take a look at uh, I'll try oh. to take a look at it during the next break, okay? Okay, thanks, Doc. All right. So uh, I'm still looking for the answer to the questions uh, about why farmers would have surveillance cameras in their anhydrous ammonia tanks. And uh, I'm still looking for the correct answer for why uh, the ancient Egyptians would use charcoal. And I'm looking for a medical reason. Uh, okay, uh, let me tell you uh, something about hummus. Uh, interesting food, right? And uh, as with virtually everything, there, there are stories. Open sesame, that's the magical phrase that opens the thieves' den in the classic story of Alibaba and the 40 thieves. Now, why that phrase seems curious. Sesame is a plant that produces capsules inside of which are the sesame seeds. Opening the capsule releases the, quote, treasure inside. Well, that treasure has been prized for millennia. When the seeds are hulled, lightly toasted and ground, they yield a paste, that's called tahini. And that is a major ingredient in hummus. There are all sorts of conflicts in the Middle East, but there is one that doesn't cause anyone any harm. And that conflict is all about who makes the best hummus. Lebanese, Syrians, Israeli Arabs, Israeli Jews, all claim the top of the podium. The truth is they all make great hummus. And we here in North America have also learned to enjoy the delights of the cooked mashed chickpeas blended with tahini, lemon juice, olive oil, and garlic, sprinkling of paprika on top. It's even healthy. There's protein, there's fiber, um, monopolyunsaturated fats with essentially no saturated fats. And you can include a decent dose of vitamins and minerals. Of course, it should be made with the best extra virgin olive oil. One problem is that people uh, can be allergic to sesame, an allergy the incidence of which is rising. 
Uh, and of course, uh, they cannot consume tahini, they, they cannot consume uh, hummus. Interestingly, it is possible for someone to consume a sesame bagel with no problem because the allergy is due to proteins within the seed and the gut doesn't break down the seed's outer hull. That means the seeds can just pass through the intestine unchanged. Anyway, though, if you know that you have a sesame allergy, that's not something to play around with. So stay away, nevertheless, from the sesame bagel. As far as calories go, two tablespoons of hummus contain only about 70 calories. Hey, but who can stop at just two? To save on calories and add some more nutrients, why not dip with carrots? So now you know a little bit more about uh, uh, hummus, which is a uh, very, very nice, uh, you know, condiment. But I also like it, believe it or not, on a sandwich. I make hummus sandwiches. And um, I put uh, either tomato into it uh, or cucumber. And uh, I know that uh, one would think that that kind of sounds revolting. Uh, but uh, if you have some good hummus and uh, you put some um, tomatoes and cucumbers in there and maybe with some thinly sliced onions, uh, it makes for a great sandwich. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have any of the downsides that we would have from the, uh, you know, preserved meats uh, like, you know, the salamis. Uh, so it is um, a healthy sandwich, especially if you make it on some sort of... Uh, whole grain bread. And uh, there are many very high quality whole grain breads that are um, available uh, now. So that's a story there for you for, uh, for hummus. Okay, I, I'm not getting any answers here to my uh, question about, uh, uh, about the uh, uh, ammonia. So uh, maybe I'll give you the answer Anyway, perhaps it was too tough uh, a question. But uh, anhydrous ammonia is used in the clandestine synthesis of methamphetamine, and farmers' supplies make for an attractive target for thieves. Uh, ammonia gas can be directly introduced into soil and serves as an excellent source of nitrogen. And the gas can be compressed to a liquid and stored in large tanks from where it is transferred to mobile tanks for pumping into the ground. And as soon as the pressure is released, this liquid ammonia changes into a gas, which immediately dissolves in water in the soil from where it is absorbed by plants. Liquid ammonia is very dangerous, corrosive substance, the sales of which are carefully controlled. It isn't easy for criminals to purchase it, hence the thievery from farms. Many a crook, though, has paid dearly for an attempted theft. Ignorance of the proper handling of liquid ammonia or transferring it into tanks not capable of withstanding high pressure can result in serious injury and even death. There have also been cases of farmers being hurt after the thief failed to close the ammonia tank properly. And there's another reason for placing surveillance cameras and warning signs around liquid ammonia tanks. Amazingly, if a thief is injured trying to steal some ammonia, the farmer may be liable if insufficient precautions had been taken. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and I'll check for the gas additive. Uh, so let's take a little break. We'll be right back. Miracles from molecules are done. 
Talking about never-ending searches, uh, maybe engaged in that because of this fuel stabilizer question, and uh, it's uh, somewhat complicated because it turns out that they do not give the ingredient when you look up the uh, uh, fuel stabilizer, of which there, there are a number of different brands. They all say that uh, it's um, uh, the ingredients are are proprietary. Uh, so I'm not sure what they are. Uh, now, certainly with time, fuel uh, undergoes two problems. One is oxidation, react with oxygen in the air. And once it reacts with oxygen in the air, that can also cause polymerization where small molecules join together to make a polymer and that can lead to a gummy texture. So uh, I would suspect that uh, whatever this additive is, is some sort of antioxidant but uh, they, I don't know for sure because it's listed as proprietary. And that's, uh, that's you know, somewhat disappointing because one should be able to find out what the ingredients are in any product that you, that you purchase. <laughs> anyway, I'll see what, uh, you know, if I can find out uh, anything more about it through a, a deeper search. But yeah, that was an interesting uh, question. All right, Charlie is on the line. Charlie. Yes, for the uh, charcoal question, was it dental okay. care? Dental care. Uh, uh, you know, that's a possibility because over the years, charcoal has been used uh, in dentifrices. It still is today, right? And you can buy charcoal uh, toothpaste. Uh, but I honestly, I don't know if the Egyptians would have used it for that. Fair. Not a, not a bad answer, though, but that's not Ooh. one... Who knows if they would have brushed their teeth that that far? Yeah, long yeah. I don't. I don't think uh, they were much into brushing teeth. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what they, you know, what they they used uh, back in those days were little shoots from plants. You know that they would stick in between their their teeth, like oh, toothpicks. That, but, that makes know, they, sense. They didn't. They didn't have toothbrushes. Of course. Okay. Thank let's you, see if someone else. Uh, okay. Let's see. Warren. Hey, Doc. How are you? All right. Actually, yeah, I do have the answer to that question. Okay. The answer is, is that it was used to absorb the odors, uh, specifically the more putrefying odors of the intestinal tract and the intestinal system during the mummification process. Yeah, I think that that's probably true, and that's very close to the answer that I was looking for. You know what they were actually using it for is um, flatulation. They would uh, put some uh, uh, powdered charcoal into their garments so that if someone let loose, uh, the odor would be absorbed. But that's a property that charcoal has, is absorbing odor. So you're quite right. It, it, uh, it very likely could have been used to uh, uh, absorb the, the uh yeah, I, I saw it on the National Geographic special about mummification. They said they actually did use charcoal to uh, yeah. remove the odors in the intestinal tract, the, the putrid odors upon death. They were using that to actually absorb those odors. Yep, that's a, it's a, undoubtedly correct. 
Okay. All right. Thanks. So we've we've tracked down the charcoal issue, and I gave you the answer also to the uh, story of uh, uh, the ammonia. Uh, we have Sonia online. I, I'm not sure if she was with an answer or she has a question. Sonia? Yeah, hi, I'm here. Hi. Uh, it's about your firming question. Yeah. Has it been answered? I did answer it, but what uh, what was your answer? Well, my answer is um, you have to protect your garden. I live on a farm, and you need to have light, or yeah, you need to put something around your garden for the nocturnal animals because they come out at night and they want to eat oh. up everything you plant. No, I could the, be wrong. Yeah, I mean, that, no, I mean that's a, it's a possibility, but that's not why legally farmers uh, uh, would uh, protect their ammonia tanks. As I explained, it was because thieves would steal the ammonia in order to make methamphetamine. Oh, so was, uh, yeah. Oh, you mean that like was, real uh, people, yeah. not animals? Real people, real people. Yeah. Oh, that's gross. <laughs> Well, okay, well, I'll just I'll get to, I'm I'm going to get some cameras then. Cuz I I do live on well, a farm. There you go. and you store ammonia? Uh well no, we're organic, so we only have chicken fertilizer. Okay, well then you So don't we don't use any that. ammonia. We're totally organic here. Okay, well they're not they're not going to steal your chicken poop. Oh yes, they so, do. I saw the Easter do? bunny last night and my friendly skunk that comes, he's not even afraid of me. Uh, Okay. And, you know, well, but those, those I, I, the nocturnal animals, I know last year I planted my garden and maybe I planted a little early hmm. and then I got up next morning and everything was chewed up and turned over. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But I don't, yeah. I don't think you have to worry about the big two-legged animals stealing your chicken poop. The four-legged? No. The I'm just ones. looking at a bunch of, a gaggle of geese right now in the river and having a great time. Thank oh, you, good. Dr. Shorts, for okay. everything you All do. Right. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay, so I guess we have, in a roundabout way, uh, answered our uh, questions, except for, you know, my problem there with the fuel stabilizer, which I will have to uh, look into uh, some more. But uh, in the meantime, uh, let's finish off with a little story here which I think is, is pretty interesting. And uh, let's call it speed toading. You know all those stories about kissing a toad and turning the warty creature into a prince? Well, maybe something to it. If the toad happens to be a Colorado River toad. Those green or brown toads are native to northern Mexico and the southern U.S. They belong to a genus Bufo, and they're characterized by their defense system of producing toxins mostly from glands next to their bulging eyes. A predator that bites into one of these amphibians can have a deadly experience thanks to toxicity. Why? Because of a combination of 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine and bufotenine. And these uh, chemicals are also potent psychoactive substances. And when vaporized and inhaled, they can produce euphoria, even hallucinations. A phenomenon known as speed toting has become a virtual industry in Tulum on the Mexican Caribbean coast. Tourists are enticed at US up to $125 a pop to inhale the smoke from burning toad venom to help them deal with the ills of the modern world, reduce depression and relieve anxiety. 
after indulging in such toading, which is completely legal in Mexico, some individuals report life-changing illumination and resolution of overthinking. Actually, I think there's some underthinking there. Talk show host Joe Rogan, not exactly a font of wisdom, compares the use of Bufo to the equivalent of 15 years of psychotherapy, something with which he is seemingly familiar, or at least should be. However, in others, the experience has been to precipitate psychosis, insomnia, and paranoia. There's legitimate scientific research going on to explore the therapeutic potential of such psychoactive substances, but that requires the use of known doses under controlled conditions. Self-experimentation on some backlot in Tulum is not the way to go, nor is licking a bufo toad, as some have tried to be recommended. You may experience the hallucination of the ugly toad turning into a prince, but it could also be the kiss of death. That's it for today. Hopefully we've informed and entertained you, and we'll try to do so again, same time, same station, next week. Until then, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>